Hey, Ishwang, thank you so much for listening to Shopify Masters. I hope you're learning lots from the guests that we have on the show. For the next few weeks, we are trying something new. We're going on location and speaking to merchants face-to-face who are based in the United Kingdom. Now, their hometowns and local communities might have inspired their business, but the lessons they learned along the way are universal, and I'm so excited for you to hear them. I won't make you wait any longer. Here is the first episode of Shopify On Location. But I think you kind of have to be a bit mad and a bit brave and a bit stupid, perhaps, to to ever set up anything because the odds are always stacked against you, right? Way more of these businesses fail than succeed. Hello and welcome to the special episode of Shopify On Location, recorded in London. I'm Shwang Estershan. How do you like your coffee? Sugar, cream, oat milk, maybe an extra shot or even iced? If you ask David Abramovich, his coffee comes with a side of warm hospitality, extra room for retail expansion, and shots of direct-to-consumer growth. David is the founder and CEO of Grind, a chain of cafes and restaurants in London, from the iconic London Bridge to the buzzing area of Soho or Covent Garden's shopping haven. You can find Grind in the most popular neighborhoods in London. Grind has also expanded online, selling sustainable coffee pods and other merchandise. David is with me in studio today, and he's going to share how he's been able to turn one single cafe into a thriving coffee empire. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the lovely introduction. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, thank you for your time. So London's a huge city. There's cafes everywhere. It's very hard to stand out. So how were you able to enter the scene with Grind? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a question that I'm often asked. And we actually opened up right next to a Starbucks store. So people kind of thought we were we were a little bit crazy to be to be doing that. But look, I think when we opened Grind, um, it was because I was actually left um, a building um, or a business rather by my father when he, he passed away when I was about 25. And I inherited his uh, cell phone retail business. Um, and that was in a couple of locations. And there was one of them that I was really attached to because it was where he used to work. And I used to work there as a 13, 14 year old kid selling mobile phone covers and repairing phones upstairs. And this was like our little tiny patch of London, right on the edge of uh, somewhere called Old Street Roundabout, which in 1995, when he took the lease, was the middle of nowhere. But by 2011, when we opened Shoreditch Grind, it was just becoming known as Silicon Roundabout. And a lot of tech businesses had had started to move into the area. So we felt that, you know, it was a great little building. And I always felt that it should be a meeting place of some kind. And I didn't understand why in London, it was so hard to get what I would call a proper cup of coffee, i.e., not one that you get from the chains, but, you you know, more the Antipodean style flat white culture that we're all pretty familiar with now. But actually, back in 2011, we weren't. So really, it was about doing something different. And it was about taking independent coffee and that independent coffee movement, but putting it into a really prominent location that where everyone could see it. Because at the time, a lot of the cafes tended to be tucked away down side streets, a lot of the good cafes. Um, and also it was about, you know, having some fun and making the whole thing feel 
really accessible. So they were kind of like the, the guiding principles of, of site number one, if you like. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple aspects. You know, um, locations would offer food. Some of them turns into a bar at night. There's really an essence of culture that Grind offers as well. We started just selling coffee. But then, you know, people were hanging out in Shoreditch Grind and it became this really cool spot and we put a recording studio upstairs and then it was getting to six o'clock and we were throwing everyone out and we were like, you know, this is crazy. Let's, what do people want to drink after six o'clock? Well, they want to drink beer and wine and, and cocktails. So we started focusing on the espresso martini, which of course, when you have amazing coffee, you have an amazing espresso martini. And we became probably one of the first to really get the coffee by day, cocktails by night thing working well. That first site became the platform from which we could then raise money and expand. Having that initial first door in such a cool spot, some of the very early decisions that we made, good and bad, have been really, you know, really definitive in the, in the overall story of Grind. How do you move on from that first cafe to multiple locations while you're in an industry that's known for thin margins? The thing that unlocked financial success for us from that first door was was adding the, the nighttime element because suddenly you've got two businesses operating on one set of fixed overheads, i.e., you know, rent, business rates, utilities, etc. And of course you had some staff costs, but that really unlocked the profitability of that site. And that made it very attractive to external investors. I was in another business which I'd, which I'd co-founded uh, and I did both for the first couple of years of Grind. Uh, and then I decided after about 18 months to, to raise some money and to leave the other business and to focus on Grind full time. And then I waited until we'd actually raised that money to, you know, to, to take that transition. And that, that initial kind of angel investment, if you like, uh, funded our second, third and, and fourth sites. And actually, we spent a while lining up the investment and lining up the sites. And then very quickly, we went from kind of one to four in in less than 12 months. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very crucial to your story. I know that it's just a sentence we're sharing right now to say you decided to let go of that business and focus on grind. But that must have been a lot of internal turmoil. How are you able to say, you know what, this is something I'm ready to let go of and this is something I'm double down on? Yeah. Do you know what? I'm... uh... I'm a pretty rational person. My wife sometimes gets annoyed because I'm I'm so rational that I should be uh, more emotional and I try and reason with our six-week-old baby. And, you know, for me, it was about what was I enjoying at the time and what did I think had the greatest chance of success from that point onwards. And I think, you know, I'd done, I'd done five years or so in the other business and we'd had a degree of success, but it wasn't the level of success that we'd all hope for. And I think just because you invested five years in something doesn't mean that on that individual day when you're making that decision, you should invest the next five years just because you've already sunk five years into something. You know, at some point you have to you have to go with what you love. And I think also for me personally, I was, you know, I was not the CEO of that business. I was I was part of a co-founding team, but there was some much you know, I was very young. I was 20, 23, 24 when we when I was making these decisions. And I really felt like I didn't want to have someone else be in charge of my kind of day-to-day life and in charge of my destiny. So so to leave and focus on something that was mine and that I could control, at least be the master of my own destiny, was, was particularly attractive. 
moving from one cafe to four in 12 months involves hiring a lot of staff in an industry where it's known for turnover. So how do you make sure that whoever is at the front of the cafe representing Grind is attuned to the culture that you want to bring forward? Culture is a is a very relevant word because I think we've built a really unique culture actually amongst our staff and our customers and as a brand. And I'm not always entirely sure how we did that. But I'm very sure that we have it and that we have to nurture it. So I think it came from the beginning about the people we hired, the kind of the tone we set, the way we encouraged them to have fun, to turn the music up, to to not take it too seriously. Like I think uh, we wanted to be the antithesis to, to the coffee shops where you went in and were made to feel silly because you didn't know if you wanted the Guatemalan or the Ethiopian single origin or whatever, it was like, you know what? I just want a flat white, but like, I just want it to be much better than it is from those guys next door. But I'm not necessarily here for a coffee education. You know, that was the customer that we wanted. And I think, you know, in craft beer, in coffee, in all of these stuff, there, there tends to be people with too many tattoos and too many piercings kind of trying to make other people feel somehow inferior and that was really not the culture that we wanted so in a lot of ways the pandemic was the biggest test of culture ever because you know every company had their ideas on culture and their ideas on what supporting staff looked like but actually that was when you really found out where the priorities lay based on who laid off hundreds of staff and who actually looked after their staff through the pandemic and took a risk. So, look, I think uh, whenever I've been presented with with a decision to make about that, we always try and do what's best for our team because, you know, if you look after the team, the, the team looks after the customers. If you don't look after the team, the team stops becoming interested in looking after the customers, is, is my experience. Yeah, I like this circle of taking care of each other and also this rejuvenation of culture that you've instilled. I think another really crucial part of Grind's success is how vertically integrated you've become. Tell us more about finding the right coffee producers and starting to roast your own coffee. Yeah, that, that kind of vertical integration, I guess, has been has been really important. And, and again, it, it was evolution. So Today, we operate a kind of -of state-of-the-art 20,000-square-foot coffee roastery in Bermondsey. We have pieces of equipment in there that cost many hundreds of thousands of pounds. And it's a big operation, and we're roasting coffee for our cafes. We supply coffee to Soho House, uh, the members club and restaurant group all over the world. We have a huge online business. You know, there's lots going on. But the first step towards that was actually the decision made before we even opened the first store, which was... We don't want to put someone else's coffee brand in here because, you know, and actually when we were setting up the first store, we had people knocking on the door, you know, from the other coffee roasting businesses saying, hey, we'll give you a free machine. We'll give you free training. We'll give you all this support if you use our coffee. And that was pretty tempting when we had no money setting up the first store to take a free coffee machine and £10,000 worth of free equipment. But, you, you know, it was it was very obvious to me from the beginning, why would we have someone else's coffee brand? Why would I give over my retail space to advertise someone else's coffee brand? I don't understand why we would do that. So we found someone on the South Coast who was willing to kind of work with us to to make a coffee blend that we really loved. And for us, that meant a coffee that was strong enough to cut through milk so you could taste it when you actually had milk in your drink. Because I think a lot of the speciality coffee scene is designed by people who love coffee and who are obsessed with coffee. And they tend to drink non-milk-based drinks. So they drink a lot, you know, 
coffee geeks, in inverted commas, drink a lot of espresso, drink a lot of filter coffee. But actually, 95% of the drinks we serve on the high street have milk inside them. And we designed it for the 95%, whereas like lots of other speciality places kind of design it for the 5% because the people designing it are in the 5%, if you know what I mean. So we, we found someone who would work with us and who would brand it up as our own brand of coffee. So from day one, we had our own coffee brand on the shelves. And, and that was really important as establishing us as a brand. And then roll forward to 2015 and we decided um, you know, to invest a few hundred thousand, probably even only a hundred thousand pounds, not even, you know, not even giant sum of money in setting up our own mini coffee roastery attached to our head office at the time to roast coffee just for our cafes. And then, you know, that did us for a while. And then we moved, uh, we moved to a space in a bigger space in Elephant and Castle, and then eventually to our massive space now in Bermondsey, thanks to what happened during the pandemic. So again, it was real like, it was a small bet at the start and then a series of much bigger bets scaling up as we got the proof along the way. And what a pivotal decision that you've made at that time. I think it really has been able to set you apart because of it. I did want to touch on your mention of the partnership with Soho House. It's prestigious all around the world. Everyone knows about Soho House. So how were you able to secure that partnership and have that great of a partnership to carry through? There's a Soho House site in Shoreditch. Um, I I recently moved away from there because I'm uh, growing up and having a family. But, you know, I spent the best part of a decade living almost next door to, to Shoreditch House, getting to know lots of the guys there. We employed several of our early operations directors. And actually today, uh, Kyle, who's our, the managing director of our high street business, he's ex-Soho House. So we have a lot of ex-Soho House team members. And we actually opened a store in the Hoxton Hotel in Holborn alongside Soho House, who operated the restaurant there back in the very early days of Grind 2013 or something. So we know them a number of ways, and they were looking for a new coffee partner, someone that could roll out globally with them. And they got in touch, and we ended up doing a deal. It's been an amazing partnership. So we supply the coffee to all of their houses, and in every one of their hotel rooms, we also you can get our uh, you'll see our pink tins uh, of home compostable Nespresso pods, which you can either buy to take home or use in the in the Nespresso machine in the room. I think you know there weren't that many businesses who were up for the challenge of supply across Europe, supply across North America, supply to you know places like Mumbai and Tel Aviv and Istanbul. You know it's a logistical challenge, and we also supply all of the equipment and we also maintain. Uh, all of the coffee equipment in the houses as well. So it's a big, it's a big beast of a contract. And, you know, obviously, we, we share a lot of, a lot of our customers are Soho House members anyway, we share a lot of values. And it was kind of a, I think we were a relatively obvious choice as as a London born brand in the same way as, you know, I think Soho House is exporting London in a lot of ways, you know, you go to the house in LA or in you know, Toronto or wherever, and it, it feels like home to me. And I think having partnering with a London-based brand made a lot of sense for them to well. So it's been, it's been an amazing partnership. Yeah, congratulations about that as well. I'm chatting with David Abramovich, the CEO of Grind, a chain of cafes and their direct-to-consumer coffee brand based out of London, UK. So now let's talk about your move online and your decision to start this D2C arm of the business. It was 2019, actually, early early to mid-19 when our move to, uh, into D2C began. And so we, over the years, we, we'd grown the business from one location to, I think, about, I think we had 12 when we went into the pandemic. We had, at that point, 
an agreement in place to open four or five stores in airports and train stations. We had a number of our own sites kind of in various stage, stages of legal. So we were kind of on track to be to be 20 stores um, relatively soon after the pandemic. But, you know, and to fund that uh, over the years, we'd done a series of, of crowdfunding raises. So, you know, we did a million, then we did two and a bit million, then we did three and a half million in, in 2019. And, and the, But in the summer of 2019, we did this final round, which was, you know, three and a half million pounds, relatively big round, big valuation. And we sat down afterwards and, you know, I, I felt quite strongly by then that we needed to invest some of that money into something other than just more high street stores. And that wasn't because I had a crystal ball and I knew there was a pandemic coming. It was more, I think, a reaction to just the challenges of the high street at that time. But you were seeing huge pressure on kind of chain and casual dining restaurants in the UK at the time. You know, there were these big chains who had 20, 50, 100 stores were were kind of collapsing and were closing lots of locations and just were unable to keep going because they offered a product at a, a relatively low price based on high volume, but the cost base was just rising and rising. Um, you know, the amount we paid for everything and rent and uh, staff cost was just going up and up. And, and I felt like it was getting more and more challenging to to predict with a high degree of certainty that if I choose this site on this street and I spend a million pounds to turn it into a restaurant, will it give me back the returns that I need in order to make that a success? And also, I knew that we had this brand that people loved. Okay, we need to find some ways to to take Grind out of just our physical stores and bring it into people's homes. So we started looking into it and you know, I, I decided that we felt that doing Nespresso pods was a really great way to get into people's homes because Nespresso pods are really, really convenient. They're very easy. It's impossible to make, mess it up. It doesn't make any mess. But the coffee that actually comes out of Nestle's own pods, which is the Nespresso brand, Nespresso is owned by Nestle, in my opinion, is not very good. And also, it's pretty terrible for the environment because you have these plastic and aluminium capsules and Nestle are very keen to tell you about their recycling scheme. But the reality is that less than one in three pods are actually recycled. You know, so 29,000 coffee pods go into landfill every single minute, which is insane when you think about it. And actually, all of the new pods that they produce require 20% non-recycled aluminium. So that means that they're constantly pulling more and more and more aluminium out of the ground to make these billions of pods every year. And that extraction of aluminium is incredibly energy intensive. So it really is an environmental catastrophe, these, these aluminium pods. And we really love the idea of pods, but we weren't willing to do it and add to that problem. Then we discovered a way to have compostable pods made. And so we decided basically, you know, I remember I wrote quite a long paper kind of setting this out that we were going to invest a million pounds, so like roughly one store's worth of money, you know, what it would normally cost to fit out one store into a new coffee roastery, developing this product, some big bits of shiny silver packing equipment and stuff that we needed, a Shopify website, of course, um, and a budget for some Facebook and Instagram marketing. So it was actually a very strategic decision made in 2019 to move the business into that area. Now, of course, it would not have been the success that it was without the kind of the pandemic, which which hit in in March and gave it a, a you know a turbo boost beyond 
anything we could ever have imagined. Um, but I think, you know, the, the rationale was sound. We just got very lucky with the timing. How was that product development process like and iterating to make sure that the pods, the coffee, everything is ideal when it reaches the customer's home? Yeah, look, it's, it's been a massive process uh, and we're still working on it, you know, every day. It's not, it's not something which is finished. So we just launched about six weeks ago the next generation of our pods, which are actually certified as home compostable. So the previous pods and... and Pretty much everyone out there except us who is selling compostable pods, those pods are classified as industrially compostable. So that means they will compost, but only in special facilities, which is great and which is a huge step forward. But it's not perfect because not every council has those facilities and people don't always have access to them. So really home compostable, Like I believe that in the future you won't be able to call industrially compostable compostable you will have to be certified as home compostable to state that something is compostable and actually in france they're already taking steps to to put legislation in place to mean that you can only say compostable if it can be composted at home um so you know we're, we're on the cutting edge of these materials we're developing we're working with packaging manufacturers all over europe to develop special materials for different parts of the packaging you know at the moment we're developing these new coffee bags because we also do whole bean and ground coffee in big volume as well we're developing these special compostable breathable bags that remove the need for a valve or therefore removes the need for us to buy millions of valves a year and to have them go into you know it's a constant iteration about how can we make the product taste amazing how can we make it as fresh and as as possible how can we deliver it as effectively as possible you know supply chain and delivery challenges are, are very much there still and then how can we keep making ourselves more and more and more sustainable as well and I like that attention to detail you know one valve on millions of bags is a big impact I wanted to ask about marketing efforts and expanding beyond the London customer base. Now you have to reach more people. So what were some strategies you deployed when marketing the online store initially? Originally, we had we had this huge boost from the, the lockdown. And, you know, luckily, you know, for about five years or so, we'd been we'd been capturing customer details in our stores um, through bookings or the Wi-Fi system. And we'd been building that email database for five years before the pandemic. And we didn't necessarily know why, but we kind of knew it would be a good thing to be able to contact our customers. And obviously, we'd use that as part of our crowdfunding as well. So, you know, we we had this huge boost from just emailing everyone saying, hey, we've closed all our stores because of the pandemic. Please support us. Please buy coffee. Please help us stay alive. And that, that gave us a huge boost at the start and everyone was amazing in supporting us. And then beyond that kind of initial burst, we use Facebook uh, and Instagram advertising very heavily, particularly during 2020 and early 2021. And, uh, you know, the way that works is that the more information you give Facebook about this is, you know, this is your customers and this is the kind of people that that like your stuff. Well, Facebook then suggests what they call lookalike audiences, which are audiences of people who are likely to have similar interests and help you target them with your advertising and try and persuade them kind of one by one to switch from Nespresso to, to Grime Pods. And really, that was our main tool for reaching customers until uh, April 2021 when... Um, Apple made some changes to their devices to stop the flow of data going back to 
Facebook, Google and others about how people were responding to adverts. So they made Apple made it much more difficult to get very clear signals about if your advertising was effective or not. So since then, we still advertise heavily on all of the digital platforms, but we've also been doing much more traditional advertising. So we've done lots of stuff on the tube with posters. We've done lots of sponsoring of podcasts. We've done fly posting, which are like, you know, kind of out of home posters around London. Partnerships as well. So partnering with other brands to introduce people to grind such as so house we're opening a store with Brewdog, the the, the craft brewery, brewery this month and you know working with other brands to reach their audiences ios 14 update that was huge for all of the businesses involved yeah. and i think to your point it's a great challenge because how do you get connected with customers and how do you have that organic connections you know i think much as ios 14 made digital advertising a lot less effective I don't think it was all bad because, you know, A, there's there's understandable privacy concerns and B, it forces you to focus even more on the product and the customer journey. And actually, we have a product which we think excels the competition in, in many, many, many ways. And I think a lot of people out there had built D2C businesses with a product which was okay, but they'd mainly built the business because they were really good at Facebook ads, not because they were really good at making a product that customers really loved. And I think it kind of forces you back to the fundamentals, which is probably a good thing in the long term. And you also have Grind's own coffee machines. So what was that process like, finding the right manufacturers to make the coffee machines? In a lot of ways, the the pod thing was, was kicked off out of what I saw as a really bizarre situation, which was that I didn't make coffee at home because, and I thought it was kind of ridiculous that, I own a lot of coffee shops and a coffee roastery and I don't make coffee at home. And I kind of wanted the convenience of a pod, but I didn't like, as we discussed, I didn't like the coffee, didn't like the environmental stuff. So really that was what led us to the down the road of doing the pods. And, and then I was like, well, I love the pods now, but I hate this machine that I've got at home. You know, this machine sucks. It's plastic and it just feels like something that was made to be sold for £100 or £200 and to last a year and then be thrown away. like that, It doesn't feel like anyone tried to make this thing to last 10 years or 20 years. It feels like it's disposable. And how, you know, how hypocritical if we're talking about compostable pods and yet we're encouraging everyone to buy more of these machines that we know last a year or 18 months and then go into landfill. So we need to find our own. We wanted to find a machine that was mainly metal, way less plastic and could be repaired and was built to last. Um, so we, we found someone in Stockholm making a machine which we loved and we partnered with them to produce our own version, which we tweaked and refined for, for our uses and our, and our pods and customised it a bit. Um, and and we, you know, we have a great partnership with them now. We've sold many tens of thousands of, of machines and they've been, a, they've been a real success. And what's great is that you can... You know, we repair them in London in our coffee roastery right next to, you know, we have a big workshop. We repair 10,000 pound coffee machines that we use in our stores and that Soa House use uh, in all of their stores. And, you know, they every year or so, every machine will come back to our to our workshop and have a full stripped down service, you know, like a car. They have to be maintained, these things. And right next to them, we're maintaining people's Nespresso machines. So, you know, every day a couple arrive that have, have broken or there's something wrong with them and, and we repair them and we ship them back. Um, mostly free of charge as well, because, you know, I just don't want all these things going into landfill. It's definitely a great ecosystem of 
just coffee in general. I want to talk about the fact that you're also expanding into North America. Has there been different strategies or different things that you've learned in that journey? We're taking some very gentle steps into American expansion. We did a large fundraise last year, but we're very aware that we could spend an awful lot of money and not get that far in America because, you know, North America is a seriously big place. It's like the whole of Europe, right? So we are, but we have fulfillment now for US customers. Um, so we have stock in in a, in a warehouse in New Jersey and we, we do ground shipping in, you know, three to five days, as you would expect from a, every other US business. So, so US customers now can log on and, and buy our products and have them shipped as if we were a US company, which is which is amazing. And we're starting to test Facebook ads. And of course, the partnership with Soa House is really important um, in terms of introducing people all across America to our products in their in their houses and in their hotels. Uh, we're working on our first store actually at the moment in the US, which is not announced yet, but you know, we've we've got some pretty pretty definite plans to to do something relatively soon. Um and yeah, look, I think I'm super attracted to to the US market. I think the culture in the US is very, very similar to, to the culture in the UK and London. And I think culturally, you know, geographically, it might be further, but culturally and obviously with the language, we share arguably more with the US than we do with, with lots of our neighbours um, in Europe. And so we're really excited about it as a massive coffee drinking uh, nation. And yeah, it's great to be taking our first few small steps and just slowly building, you, you know, the the revenue coming out of our US store is, is a small fraction of our UK store, but it's ticking up every month and we're, and we're building customers and we're building a little bit of loyalty there. And, and yeah, so we're really pleased about that. You mentioned a lot of different rounds of fundraising for founders who are going through the same process. What kind of advice would you have for them to ensure that they're bringing in the right investors into the fold? Fundraising is, is really hard. And over my kind of life in business so far, I've done venture capital into my last business i've done angel into grind at the start what we privately fund we funded ourselves at the start and then took some angel investment then we did three or four rounds of crowd three rounds of crowdfunding and then more recently we did a 22 million pound round so about 30 million dollar round so a big round from a private individual um, who who took a large stake in the company and funded our next phase of expansion and uh, that was in august last year as a result of our shift and our pivot towards D2C in the pandemic, you know, the investment, the investment was mainly to grow that side of the business. So my advice is always, and, and I've, I have taken this advice myself, is to, to focus more on who the investor is and how they might behave in the future than the headline terms on that day. You know, I see, I see a lot of founders getting obsessed about the headline valuation of the business, but actually when you unpick it, the investor has preference shares, which means they get outsized returns versus everyone else. Or they might have liquidation preferences, which means if it all goes wrong, they take all of their money back before anyone else gets any. And sometimes they take all of their money back plus interest plus a bit more before anyone else gets gets any. So often in the pursuit of this higher headline valuation, people give away a lot in the detail of the terms because all they want to do is tell everyone they raised 2 million quid at a 20 million valuation when actually they'd have been better off raising 2 million quid at a 10 million valuation because the other stuff they've signed up to is going to be so painful if it goes wrong. And, you know, they've given away too much in the detail. So I think that's really important to not be overly obsessed with the headline valuation and just to think about who you're getting into bed with because, you know, you're signing yourself up to 
uh, a, not a lifetime, but certainly many years of having to spend time with these people, having to have board meetings, having to have them be able to call you, right? Like when you go from a business which is privately owned to a business which, which has external investors, well, you've given them the right for them to call you or ask to meet up with you and ask you questions. Yeah, rightly so. I would want to do the same if, if I'd invested particularly for our first round of, of our angel funding, I didn't take the best terms on the table. Um, I actually took significantly worse terms than the best offer I had from an investor who I knew was the right guy, a guy called John Ayton, um, who's founded and invested in lots of luxury brands. And I just knew John was the right guy and I knew I could spend time with John and I knew I could have a healthy business relationship with John versus some other people that offered me money at the time who were perfectly nice and were great, but I just didn't feel were the right fit for us. And so, you know, I've always been very focused on who I'm bringing into the business as much as as much as what the terms are. It's not just that one-time financial injection, it's a relationship. Yeah, people forget that, okay, someone cuts a check and you give them some shares. That's, that's the very first moment of the relationship. That's not the end of the relationship. The relationship is then talking to them weekly, monthly, meeting up with them monthly, you know, deciding everything together, deciding which sites, you know, it's a, it's a long and, you, you know, sometimes amazing and sometimes painful relationship that you're signing up for, signing up uh, to have. I think one theme that I really love about our conversation is how confident and also right you are about certain pivots, like initially saying that you wanted your own coffee made and produced, then going online and also really having that really confident choice in investors. So I guess my question is, how do you ensure to educate yourself, prep yourself to make sure that you are making choices that you're confident about and they are conducive to good decisions for the business? I've got some big decisions wrong over the years. You know, there's one example which I always give, which actually was really important, but I think four or five or six doors in, feeling very confident. Every store we'd opened had been great. We decided to open a slightly more upmarket one with more expensive items on the menu and truffle pasta for $40 a plate. And you know, and we spent way too much on the fit out. And actually, you know, that was a painful mistake. And that, that restaurant probably overall cost about a million pounds in terms of how much we spent on fitting it out. And then how much it you know, made a little bit of money while it was open and then ultimately it was sold for a fraction of that. And that was a really expensive mistake. But um, in a lot of ways, that was really important because, you know, even after a year of having it open, you know, it ended up being open for five years or so because it was making money, but only a little tiny bit, nothing like it was supposed to. Even after a year of having it open, it was clear that we'd made some mistakes and actually it forced us to refocus and think about, okay, well, why do people like Grind? They're not coming to us for truffle pasta. They're coming to us for the vibe and for great coffee and for simple food and great cocktails that all exceeds your expectations, but is not super expensive. You know, we are not fine dining. So sometimes when you get it wrong, that's an amazing opportunity to course correct and pull the whole business back to where it was and actually after that we became just grind and we put the same menu in everywhere and we standardized what we were doing across the operations a lot and actually it was painful and it was expensive but that was the best thing that ever happened to us so I think if you want to be an entrepreneur and you, you want to lead a business you've, you've got to believe 
your own decisions and you've got to accept that you won't always get them right but you've got to have conviction in what you're doing and you need to be able to listen to all of the opinions in the room or listen to the opinions from the world in in the press and you know and then make a decision and go with it and commit to it and you have to be able to sell that decision to investors and your customers and your staff and even though you won't always get it right if you don't believe your own decisions no one else will so i think you just kind of have to be wired that you have courage in your convictions and you have a strong sense of belief and i've always believed i was going to be right every single time even when i was wrong um and i think that's kind of a personality thing that maybe you need to have the worst thing an entrepreneur can be is indecisive and lacking in direction and you need that optimism to yeah, drive absolutely. you forward the reality is it was probably not a sensible move to set up grind in the beginning it's turned out to be the best thing that i ever did i've loved every moment of it and it's it's brought success by every measure but actually it didn't make sense to try and set up a a coffee shop at that time it was a silly decision it was a poor investment of a couple of hundred thousand pounds on paper because the chances of it going wrong were far greater than the chances of going right but i think you kind of have to be a bit mad and a bit brave and a bit stupid perhaps to to ever set up anything because the odds are always stacked against you right way more these businesses fail than succeed and I, i always encourage people that if they've got this itch that they want to scratch and they want to do something to just get on with it because people spend forever talking about it they say they're going to open this business i know people that have been opening a business next month for five years like you know talking about it getting ready lining up the investors focusing on the copyright issues and intellect and all this other stuff that just gets in the way of actually just getting on with it and so much of business is just getting stuff done and getting on with it and you have to will that business into existence no one else is going to do it for you so if you fancy having a go my advice is always you know just get on with it it's never been you know with tools like shopify with tools like instagram it's never been cheaper or easier or faster to start a business and give something a go and the only way you're ever going to find out if it's going to work or not is by doing it no amount of research or talking to people or thinking about it will prove if the market actually requires your product or service or not. Well, I hope this inspires a lot more people giving their own businesses a go. Um super excited for all the things we're doing. Are there any additional news that you want to share about Grind? We've got really exciting plans to open our first kind of retail focused stores. Um so, you know, we've kind of come full circle and in a lot of way, you know, you've seen brands like Allbirds and Glossier and Away Luggage and the kind of the big the big D2C brands have all started opening physical stores. We've kind of done it the other way around. We did the physical stores and but now we're primarily a D2C brand, you know, more of our group revenue comes from D2C activities than it does from the high street. But we're going to be opening our first kind of hybrid retail and high street stores. So there'll be a store where you're able to go and buy pods you can buy pods and coffee in all of our stores at the moment but it's kind of something we've retrofitted you know we haven't designed it to be a retail experience so we're designing the first of those retail experiences but you could also come in and get a cup of coffee to take away so the idea will be you can bring your pink tin in which you have in your kitchen and we'll refill it for you and you can bring your machine in for repair and that kind of stuff so i'm really excited to now you know now post pandemic start opening our first of those hybrid stores and really bring the two halves of the business together 
in a new format that we've never tested before. So yeah, watch this space. Follow us on Instagram at Grind. So exciting. And thank you so much for being here today, David. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was David Abramovich, the CEO and founder of Grind. I'm Shwang Esther Shan. Come join us next time on Shopify on Location.